0: Welcome to episode 122 of Survivor Sanctuary. I am Kelly. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I want to get a little bit of housekeeping out of the way real quick because we've got a great show with some special guests coming up in a minute. But first, I want to remind you that you can become a patron of the podcast, patreon.com forward slash Survivor Sanctuary. And you can also follow the Patreon page, even if you are not a monthly supporter. And you can follow updates there, join some conversations and some chats as well. Patreon.com forward slash Survivor Sanctuary. You can help support this podcast. And I want to give a big shout out to our newest patron of the podcast. Marquise C just became a super fan of the podcast. So big thanks and to everyone who is a supporter and patron of Survivor Sanctuary's podcast. Patreon.com forward slash Survivor Sanctuary. Well, if you've been watching the headlines since October, you may know that the International House of Prayer in Kansas City has been in the headlines for a sexual abuse scandal involving their founder, Mike Bickle. Initially, a Jane Doe came forward and alleged that Mike Bickle had used prophecy to sexually abuse her over the course of four years. And since then, some other allegations have been made as well. Some of them involving Mike Bickle being accused of clergy sex abuse that spans several decades. He's also been accused of allegedly covering up his own son's affair and threatening a whistleblower. And in addition to the accusations and allegations against Mike Bickle, IHOP Kansas City has been under fire for their handling of these sexual misconduct allegations, and not just against Mike Bickle, but against former staffers. And one of these allegations involves the director of the International House of Prayer Kansas City, Stuart Greaves, allegedly covering up a rape. So things are a little bit of a disaster for International House of Prayer Kansas City right now. And on the podcast today, I've invited Paige and Andy Weber. They are a married couple. They're longtime listeners of the podcast, and they both have connections to the International House of Prayer In Kansas City, having lived there for many years, and also both having been on staff at IHOP. And I've invited them onto the show to share some of their story and get their take on what's been going on at the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. And the first thing that I want to ask, by way of a little bit of background, and we'll start with you, Paige, how did you become involved with the International House of Prayer?
1: Okay, so. I had trauma in my past, in my childhood. And so I became a Christian around age 17. And I did what all good Christian girls do I went to Bible college and I really loved it. I had a great time in Bible college. I had some issues there, but nothing I would say would be significant. But shortly after I graduated, I moved to Kansas City. And I got connected with Metro Christian Fellowship, which was um, at the time Mike Bickle's church. And I'd never been a part of the charismatic movement up until that point. So it was new and exciting. And the worship was lively. And I really got engaged quickly. And within a few months, he announced the beginning of the house of prayer. And I was all in pretty quick a lot of my friends were, were going as well. So I started originally on the Night Watch in um, 98, and then I officially was done with IHOP in 2016. So I was there for a good chunk of time.
0: That's quite a while.
1: Yeah. And so I would say the bulk of my religious trauma was from there. And I, I do believe that my childhood played a, a significant role in just
0: being more of a
1: target, so to speak for right. abuse.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That I feel like that happens to, so often to people, Like whether it's with religious trauma or childhood sexual abuse, it feels like there's something that we can identify that it's like, oh, this might've made me more susceptible to that. Andy, how about you? How did you get started in IHOP?
2: So it was my freshman year of college through a campus ministry that Uh, My faith in Jesus became really personal to me. And shortly after that, I actually decided I also went to a Bible college, a different one than Paige went to. And then after I graduated there, I did vocational youth ministry for a few years. I lived in Ohio. And it was through a friend group there that I started to come out to Kansas City. The House of Prayer would host an annual young adult conference that was called One Thing. It was the last week of December, basically, going into New Year's Day. This conference featured amazing worship and teaching. And um, at the height of it, it, it attracted 20,000 young adults to the big convention center downtown. So through that, um, I really started to you know hear about the internships they offered and what it means to be on staff at IHOP. So as I looked for kind of the next thing I was going to do in my life, the, a number of these friends. We all moved out here in the fall of two thousand six, and I did an internship that was like three or four months. And after that, I was on staff for a couple years, and I I was kind of on a night watch schedule also with that, as far as my prayer room hours, and I did uh, media work, and I you know I would say overall. My religious trauma from IHOP was not nearly as directly inflicted. Um, when I came into that internship, the leaders of my particular internship were, were older. They were very pastoral. They had ministry experience outside of IHOP before they came. So my experience was a lot healthier in that way than a lot of the young adults that come through. And I sort of kept to myself in my other role once I was on staff doing media so a lot of the horror stories that I hear just are really heartbreaking but also I feel like I was spared from a lot of those things but it also doesn't take away from how difficult it was to once I left to even understand how to be a Christian outside of that that very artificial radical environment. Right. Um and so like I've I've still been untangling a lot of the theology and the the underlying foundations of of that movement
0: and we're talking about ihop and night watch and prayer room and i'm familiar with some of it because i've had friends who actually went to ihop casey and i've been reading a lot but we probably have some listeners who are like the only thing they know about ihop is pancakes and right like what is a night watch what is a prayer room I don't understand so could you give people maybe like a rundown of exactly what IHOP is and I you you mentioned that you were on staff there and I know at one point there were like a thousand staff members which seems really extreme to me and I don't quite understand I think it's down to like 600 now if I'm not mistaken but just give us a little like a little blurb of like what is ihop what is what are prayer rooms and i watch what's the purpose and and the point of of all of it
2: so it's a very complicated history um there there literally are entire podcasts just about that but i'll try and i'll try my best to summarize um ihop is it it's many things to many people and it comes out of i would call it third wave pentecostalism as far as church history goes you you can trace it back to the influence of the post-World War II healing revivals, and in, in particular, the Latter Rain movement had a lot of influence. There's a traveling healer, evangelist person named Paul Kane that was very influential in the founding of IHOP. He and, and a number of other, what people in that movement would have called prophets, were kind of nicknamed the Kansas City Prophets. And back in the early 1980s, they felt that they had received a number of very particular and dynamic prophetic words that predicted certain events, um, weather events uh, involving a drought and unseasonal temperatures and snow and things that, that were claimed to have happened back then. And that were used to confirm the idea that God was raising up a prayer movement, a house of prayer movement of young people in particular who would lead this movement. And the idea being that as we enter into the end times, that young people praying fervently would instigate a great end times revival. And as far as evangelism and explosive evangelistic movement so there there was all these detailed prophecies. If you start digging into it, there's a lot of questions, and some of these prophecies are quite dubious and contradicted by actual weather records and things that now that you can research online would call a lot of that into question there's There's also evidence that ihop has revised these prophecies up to seven times throughout their history and whenever problems or things that were refuted would, would crop up. There was this very careful narrative shifting and editing of, of the prophetic history, but, but you hear a lot of talk about the prophetic history.
1: Yeah. And so practically for people that are like, okay, so that's a lot. (laughs) um, It really looked like a, a, a worship team up on the stage with four or five, sometimes up to eight singers And then usually a person off to the side who's the prayer leader. And kind of the idea of IHOP is that it was in the spirit of the tabernacle of David. So the Old Testament, they worshipped around the tabernacle night and day. And so the prayer leader followed a model. And that model is what kind of set how everything is done at IHOP. And so there were different types of sets, but sets were done in two hours. And so, intercession sets are with a prayer leader and um people coming up and praying for a variety of things using apostolic prayers and then there are sessions that are just full worship called devotional sessions where you can just read your Bible or pace around the room so practically, it looks like a strip mall in South Kansas City that has this big worship room that looks similar to what you know a church might look next to a coffee shop and a few other types of places like that, a real estate agency, all kind of right there. So the community was all right there in that strip mall and next to it was a big apartment complex full of young adult interns who all also were a part of that night and day worship. So kind of two sides of it there was the worship side and then there was like all the people in the background that did all the things to make the worship side
0: exist that kind of sums it up a uh, little bit <laughs> so is it someone has been literally praying in there nonstop since it started in 1999 or are there breaks or is it just something that keeps going
1: so it opened in May of 98 and at that time it was only about 12 to 14 hours a day. So uh, the night watch back then was midnight to 3 a.m. and then it stopped. But by August of 98, they went 24 hours a day and they've been 24 hours
0: a day since then. That's a lot of praying. I mean, praying's good. (laughs) Like,
1: I feel like that would be
0: so stressful to make sure that, like, no, like it never stopped, that it's continuous. It it carried a lot of weight.
2: It's viewed as the same thing as being like a, a missionary overseas, they call it being an intercessory missionary and people actually raise support, something I, I was never fully comfortable doing. And honestly, if you really look at the numbers, most people aren't very successful long-term doing that. There's a whole lot of poverty that, that goes along with that. If you're not one of the celebrity, you know, preachers or, popular worship leaders who make money in other ways. But yes, it's it's viewed as just as legitimate or as important as being a missionary.
0: Your staff, but you are raising your own support. So basically there are a whole lot of people working for IHOP or on staff at IHOP, but IHOP's not paying their salaries by and large.
2: Right. I mean they you might get like a stipend a month or something, but the schedule that you're doing, you have your 24 hours a week in the prayer room, plus that much, at least of administrative, like your job that you do. And honestly, that turns into a lot more. So there's a 60 hour week is not uncommon.
0: And that's a really great business model. If you just want to make tons of money, (laughs) you're going to work for me, but guess what? You're going to get your friends and family and your church to pay your own salary so that I don't have to.
2: It's uh, everyone files taxes as an independent contractor. It's kind of, kind of an IRS loophole if you, well, and it
1: was a brilliant setup by him because that way, if they were ever sued, there was no one to sue because everyone worked for themselves. And so Uh that was very intentional and very known in the beginning that if you wanted to go to Texas and set up a house of prayer, you wouldn't be the same house of prayer. And so they were intentional with that, with everyone that you were your own entity.
0: I know we had a Miami house of prayer. Uh And I didn't really run in that circle, but I had friends that did. And so I kind of by default, ended up at a few different events where people had been, e- even to to IHOP, Kansas City, but also were big into the House of Prayer in Miami. So, yeah, it did make its way around. But that's very interesting that they weren't considered like the same entity. It's not like they're franchising. Basically, you're independent wherever you set up,
2: right? And for the record, we are both still Bible believing Christians. Um, we, you know, I think have a lot of reservations though about some of the theology and especially some of the practice of how it's implemented and just the damage we've seen it cause people.
0: And can you speak to some of that damage? Because I know we're starting to see just in the news stories, and and we're going to get to that in, in just a few minutes with Mike Bickle and some of the allegations that have been made against him. But can you speak to some of just the experiences at IHOP that give you those reservations or things that you can say This is absolutely not okay.
2: One of the biggest things to me is the emphasis on, like, where where Jesus would say, no one knows the time or season of his return. Like, they would acknowledge that, like, we're not going to set dates and that sort of thing. But they kind of skirted around that issue and said, but we will know the times and the seasons. And so there was this emphasis on, we don't know the exact time, but it's probably within the next 50 years. So is this idea of we're in such a serious time of church history that this is the end times, Jesus is coming back, and really any sort of normal life planning takes a back seat. So you have all these young people where you're de-emphasizing the things that would set them up for a stable life. Like, why worry about going to an accredited college? Go to our unaccredited Bible school thing we're doing and That'll really teach you what you need and why chase after the American dream and they would say that in like a pejorative sense like that's just all materialism and you know give yourself to the lord and and so it really hinders people maturing I think and and setting themselves up for a successful life right um,
1: and then i I think one of the other pieces Kelly is we're getting into the trauma element of it so. I don't think I mentioned in the intro that I am a trauma therapist now in Missouri and we kind of had two traumas happen at the same time. So we had this kind of collective trauma. Anyone who's been at the house of prayer since 98 till now, um, realizing that Mike Bickle has now been accused of pretty significant spiritual and sexual abuse and despite the tremendous amount of um, evidence that is kind of out there on the topic, it's created this um, firestorm of arguing online about who believes who. And do we believe the woman who's come forward or the many women that have come forward, or do we believe this world renowned pastor through as a great personality? Right. And then we have the second trauma, which is, The reframing of individuals' experiences where initially they might have thought, well, that church was pretty messed up, but I got out. Now, looking back, can see things that were done to either indoctrinate them, that were there to cause trauma, microaggressions, so many things out there that people are starting to realize. And I think one of those pieces is that a lot of women have come forward and said women at IHOP are treated very, very differently than their male counterparts.
0: Right.
1: I think that's been a big aha for a lot of the former staff.
0: So, I mean, we can get into Mike Bickle, who's, I mean, what the, did they just call him the founder of IHOP?
2: Yeah, he's had different titles. I mean, the, the founder, works.
0: yeah. CEO. <laughs> Yeah, he,
2: he was that for a while. Oh,
0: okay,
1: president.
2: <laughs> Interestingly, though, several years ago, he, in in every official official capacity, stepped down from all of his positions at IHOP, even though he still effectively and practically was leading everything. But he did that to shield the ministry from what he perceived would be an uptick in persecution against the ministry, and. It's just very interesting timing.
0: Yeah. I kind of listened to a portion of or I, I I can't did I actually listen to it or was I reading excerpts of it? I'm not positive, but either way, of the sermon that he like one of the last ones he preached right before these allegations came out. Yeah. And It just really listening to that, knowing the allegations that were about to be made, because I listened to it after the fact, it just seemed like a whole lot of, oh, dear, people are about to find out all this stuff. So let me kind of jump in here and do some damage control, like preemptively.
1: That's kind of true. You're referring to the black horse message as it's known. And the idea behind that was there was a prophetic word that a Black horse was coming and they were going to bring accusations against Mike Bickle and against IHOP, um, and they were not true. And he started that narrative pretty early on in IHOP. I don't know the exact year, but it was a very known thing, even probably in my first year there, that this was going to happen. So at the time that the first woman accused Mike Bickle um, would have been that same year that the Black Horse message came forward. Now, the thought is there were women before what they refer to as Jane Doe, but the messaging with IHOP was like, this is going to come out at some time, and it's going to be really heart-wrenching, but it's all false. And so he knew what was coming. He was aware of the documents that was being presented by um, what they call the Advocacy Group, which is a group of people that were former staff leaders that had collected evidence over a longer period of time. And so he intentionally gave that message
0: knowing what was coming. Right. And that seems like, I mean allegedly let me just that. let me just slip that word in there real quick (laughs) to to make sure our bases are covered but yeah allegedly clearly it's way too convenient to just have a message like that and then suddenly these allegations come out the thing that i think is sad one of the many things i think is sad about this is that the people who are so just kind of wrapped up in the culture of ihop and are just super into Mike Bickle and they're, they're going to think that he can do no wrong essentially. And so it's going to be a little bit easier to kind of pull the wool over some people's eyes than others. And I don't think it's a mistake either that the ministry really targets young people, uh, which makes it, yeah, it makes it a lot easier to keep everyone under control. And, you know, our brains aren't even done developing until we're like 25 and, Mm -hmm. you know, you've got people, trying to make sense out of life. Like I was a disaster in college and I went to a Pentecostal college. It was in the assemblies of God. And it wasn't to the extreme of IHOP, I would say, like the charismatic extremes. But I did did go to some churches off campus where, you know, we'd leave services and people were like convulsing and having like (laughs) these like muscular, just like twitches for the rest of the day after. And I just would think like, Okay, I must not be a good Christian because I right. feel anxiety and I, I I can't make myself feel any of this stuff that other people are feeling. So it's it's a really yeah. you're susceptible to a lot of things when you're eighteen, nineteen, twenty, and you're early twenty. It's just that's just the reality. I mean, you can be susceptible to cult like messages at any point in life, I think, but especially sure. when you're young
2: yeah and just the idealism that you have the naivety and just tend to just trust people right. that are put in front of you as people tell you that's a trustworthy leader and one thing i will say about this what they call the advocate group these are people who were long-term highly respected leaders and have moved on from ihop to do their own ministry but none of them had bad blood with ihop in fact they we cooperating even with Mike and doing events together, all the way in Wes Martin's case, even this past summer. They have, a, I, I think, a combined almost 120 years of serving at IHOP, if you took that group and, and looked at them. And the way they came forward was with such humility, and they genuinely believed IHOP was going to respond in a healthy way. And um, they wanted to do it right. They wanted to do it biblically. And one thing that Alan Hood described, and he was a leader for so long at IHOP, and he's in this group, that in that that message that Mike preached, the Black Horse message, Mike gave, uh, he said the date that he's claiming that he first had that prophetic encounter about the Black Horse, the date he chose is the main Jane Doe's birthday. Wow. He did that on purpose, and she received that as a threat. Like, you open your mouth, bad things are going to happen. Right. But these these men and women in this advocate group, they have their their own YouTube channel. They've released several videos. I'd you know, recommend if anyone's interested to really understand their heart.
0: Right. I can link to those in the show notes, too, for people who want to learn more. So how did this group get to be formed? Was it after the Jane Doe allegations? It was before? It, and why? Like, why did why did they need to form just with their own personal experiences at IHOP? I mean, you said that most of them didn't have an issue with, with IHOP itself.
1: Yeah, most of them. Well, I would say all of them left on pretty good terms. What happened was Andy referred to the original Jane Doe. So A woman came forward to someone who is connected in the advocacy group and told the story that Mike had approached her and had said that I had a word from God that my wife is going to die and you are going to be my next wife. And Julie Royce tells a full story, that Jane Doe story of um, being taken to Italy being given a private hotel room, remembering going to dinner with Mike Bickle, having alcohol. She was 19 at the time. Right. um, And waking up in her hotel room fully clothed. And that's the beginning of her story. And they initially thought this is a standalone story. It's a horrible story, but it's a standalone story. And as they started to investigate, question Look for things. They found other women um, who had been told the exact same thing. My wife's going to die. You're going to be my wife. And that was used to say that it would be okay to go ahead and perform marital duties ahead of time.
0: Right, since you're going to so be my wife the, someday that's anyway. That's the
1: allegation. Yeah. Right.
0: And I did, I did read that it's like, I think at least three, if not more, women have said that he used that my wife is going to die line. And his poor wife, I mean, he denies those allegations. So I will say they're alleging that. But to just tell no. women over and over again, oh, we can do this because God told me my wife is going to die and I'm going to have a new wife. That's a little bit or a lot bit um, yeah. kind of <laughs> crazy. So this group was formed essentially because of Jane Doe coming to them and telling her story.
1: Yeah. And she was a a respected leader as well. And so they really valued what she had to say. And so they were willing to ask lots of questions and be curious Um, But I think that was part of it was this is a person that we've known to be truthful over time.
0: Right. And I think I mean, that always helps. And then you have your heart goes out to the victims who aren't good victims, because there are plenty who aren't and who don't get taken as seriously. But regardless of the fact that they believe her, I think that they're like you said, people are kind of arguing back and forth like about who they want to believe online.
1: I think that's part of it. And then out of that, another group formed, kind of called themselves the Armchair Advocates. And that group was uh, people on Facebook deciding enough is enough. And the abuse didn't stop with Mike Bickle. He actually, there, there were other things happening within the campus at large with lots of different leaders lots of types of abuse, lots of different types of traumas. And people began sharing their stories. And I really do think that was part of the firestorm they were not expecting. And part of what I would say was their PR nightmare was they couldn't stop everyone from talking. And it became too many stories, too fast, too intense to keep up with.
0: And there was a lot of, it seemed like in the message in the, like the black horse message, I think that there was a lot of manipulation there as far as trying to keep it quiet on social media. Oh, don't engage with people. Don't talk to them about anything. Don't it's like, you know, this, the silencing, we want to make sure that when these accusations come out, you're not, you're not talking about them and not helping them spread because obviously people talking about them online are going to have them spreading everywhere and people are going to find out, but yeah, they didn't, obviously expect that people who weren't necessarily sexually abused, allegedly, right. were going to come forward and start sharing their stories of trauma as well.
2: Yeah. And, and that certainly has happened. There's, you know, a Facebook group that's been there for several years now of recovering former IHoppers, And so that was already kind of starting to happen anyway, but this just really accelerated it. But from within IHOP, the messaging was very clear, stay off, like like there were so many messages about warning people against gossip and stay off of social media. And Dave Slyker, who was the president of of IHOPU, the, their Bible school, um, was caught on a secret or undercover recording telling the students to not proactively talk to their parents about this. And. Just answer only if they bring it up and answer as little as you can about it, you know, so that the, the initial response was awful. And there were a lot of allegations coming up about cover ups of sexual assaults that that happened at IHOP. By, at that time, at the beginning of the Bickle investigation, the leaders being accused of covering up those uh, other sexual assaults by other um not Mike Bickle, but committed by other people, that created a huge firestorm. And eventually, they had Dave Slyker and Stuart Greaves, who had prominent leadership roles, officially resign. But it's it's quite questionable because they just resigned their leadership positions. But Dave Slyker is still apparently on staff, still prayer leading, it seems. Um, mm-hmm. So it almost seems to a lot of people like this is just buying time in in order for things to die down and then reinstate people.
0: Yeah. That's always a fear. If, if somebody took it seriously, like, Oh, I should resign because I mishandled this and I shouldn't be leading because of it. But if you're just resigning a title, but you keep doing everything, um, it reminds me of this story of what, what happened when I came forward about being abused. Um, My abuser was stripped of his title, but kept on doing everything that he had been doing before. So it's like, well, okay, you got a title taken away, but you're still doing puppet shows for little children, which just doesn't seem like a great idea. But yeah, this is kind of like one of those situations where they're waiting for this to die down. The less people that talk about it, the less likely it is to get into the media. And even if it does get into the media, if we can keep it to a minimum and keep people from talking about it, then we can just go back to the way things were and- settle back in you know to our roles or whatever so i know that those two it was two right that who resigned
2: yeah dave Slyker, Stuart greaves um
0: several of the board members actually
1: resigned before that point because they refused to sign an nda yeah or the evidence coming forward was so um convincing that they were unwilling to stay so it was a combination of things
0: There's never a red flag in people wanting to sign an NDA or encouraging everybody to be quiet. It just that never fails to amaze me because truth doesn't have to worry about anything.
2: And, And now the ministry is refusing to officially list who is on their executive leadership team or their board. And some advocates have found out through other means, some of the people, but it's like, there's all this secretive stuff going on
0: which is just a huge red flag for, for any ministry. If there's any word of advice I could give a survivor or somebody who's trying to figure out like a a sex abuse scandal or a scandal of any kind, really in a church is if they're trying to keep everybody quiet, like that's your surefire like way to know that there's something fishy going on. Because if you care about the truth, and if you care about helping survivors, and if you, you care about just being godly, and not abusing people, then you should be open to hearing the truth, whatever it is. And Mm -hmm. there just seems to be a lot in these ministries. There just seems to be a lot of that. Like everything is shrouded in secrecy and just giant red flag. Somebody wants you to be quiet. There's something going on. And I know that that doesn't fit into every life situation, but typically in churches that are going through scandal, I think that that's one that it's like a safe bet to just assume. IHOP's response to this entire thing has been widely criticized as well, because I think that it goes beyond just like telling people not to gossip. Can you speak to that a little bit to the response?
2: So- Initially, the advocate group, working with victims um, had a meeting with the top iHOP leaders that they felt went very well. They felt that, you know, everyone was on good terms with each other, that it was well received, and the iHOP leaders prepared and were going to make a statement. Uh, I believe it was on a Friday night, and they they did make a statement at the service. But it did not at all go in the way that the advocate group was hoping. It was the third item down a list of announcements. It was very minimized. Um, It was very nonspecific. It didn't even mention that it was sexual accusations. Um, And so it was very inadequate. And so that's what really ratcheted up the outrage, I guess. And the whole thing just the the more that IHOP made statements, the worse it got. And it was very clear they were not trauma informed. They were not managing it well at all. So eventually they they brought in a guy named Eric Voles. His real name is Eric Laniero. He secretly changed his last name about a year ago to his mother's maiden name, which is a very interesting story. And his qualification to be a PR spokesperson amounts to that he was convicted and imprisoned for murdering and raping his ex-girlfriend in Nicaragua. He was then legally exonerated. It does seem that there's good evidence that he was not at the actual scene of the crime. I can't speak to what else may have gone on behind the scenes. I have questions, but that's all I have. After he returned to the United States, he started a nonprofit called the David House Agency, which apparently specializes in international show trials, kangaroo trials. It specializes in public relations, basically, in the words that his website says that they only represent clients that they know are innocent. He was having one-on-one meetings with Mike Bickle. This was back in late October. were two leaders, Sam Storms and Francis Chan, who are nationally known Christian leaders who were very close friends with Mike, who flew here from out of state to to meet with their friend Mike. And Eric is the one who came to the door when they knocked at Mike's house and he turned them away. So Eric has been, you know, when later questioned as to his neutrality on the issue, and when it was brought up that why were you meeting with Mike if you're supposed to be a neutral party, he said that he's not representing Mike. He he was there representing IHOP and meeting with Mike for that purpose. But everything coming out of his mouth has been deflection. It's been a master course in how a narcissist deflects and sharing half-truths, um, obfuscating things creating mistrust and just really denigrating the advocate group and their motives. It's been awful. And he's done it all in the name of that. He's, he's wanting the truth and he's, he's this virtuous person who's here to help. So that's my, my summation, I guess, of Eric Voles.
0: So he's just basically like a spin guy.
1: Yeah. He was there to create the PR spin narrative that would be, do the least amount of damage.
0: So he must have advised Mike Bickle to release a statement. I know that initially he claims he did not release a statement when these allegations came out because he says that he was advised by his lawyer that to do so would sound like he was admitting to the allegations of sexual abuse. I was super disappointed in his statement that he made Because essentially, he does what you see a lot of fallen leaders do, Mm -hmm. and the deflecting just begins immediately. I think that the first sentence begins with, 20 plus years ago. And (laughs) the second I hear that, it's like, well, this is not a genuine confession. This is not a genuine apology, because the first thing you're trying to do is let everybody know that it was several decades ago. It was so long ago. That's the first thing you want to plant. In people's minds. And from there it it was bad and then it just got worse. And so I think that he admitted to moral failures, but would not admit to sexual abuse, which in a position of power and him being in his, in his forties, I think when Jane Doe says that he began sexually abusing her in that position, it, it is abusive. It's not ever going to be like a consensual relationship between two equal adults. But yeah, his his response was, was pretty disappointing. But what was your take on his apology, if you want to call it that?
1: I also found it to be a lot of very narcissistic deflecting. And IHOP did a fantastic job of trying to make the narrative this Kind of elusive person who wasn't real and very much dehumanized the experience. Instead of seeing it as a woman at 19 who carried trauma in her body so intensely she disassociated for 20 years. Right. And leaving the piece out that this woman carried the trauma in her body for 20 years before she had the kind of neuro capacity to begin to remember right like that is horrendous abuse mm
0: -hmm. just horrendous
1: abuse people wanted to make the narrative about well should we rip this apart or should we see all the holes in it or should we see it as repentant but the goal is what exactly what it did which is let's not make this a real person
0: right and i think that that's one of the unfortunately it's it for a victim it's really difficult but I think that IHOP benefits from the fact that the identity of of the victim is not being made known like widely. I'm sure there are plenty of people who are affiliated with IHOP who know who it is, but they're reaping some benefits from the fact that they can make her seem like she's less real because people aren't seeing her face necessarily. And, And I think that as a victim, you get to choose that and no one can tell you whether you need to come forward anonymously or not. Victims do what they're comfortable with. But I think that IHOP is using, it seems like they're using that to their advantage where it's a little bit easier to make this nameless, faceless person seem like maybe they're not telling the truth.
1: Right. And because IHOP in itself is an environment that creates fear and control. And so if you're in that environment for a long period of time, those two things tell you to fall in line. And so when you're told, keep this to yourself, you keep it to yourself, because that's what good soldiers do.
0: That is powerful. And it's so true. So many of us are recovering from trying to be good soldiers, as you put it. There is so much more to unpack about IHOP, and we are going to do that on the next episode of Survivor Sanctuary when we hear part two of Paige and Andy Weber's story And we go a little bit more in depth into the allegations against Mike Bickle and what's been happening at the International House of Prayer. I hope you'll join me on the next episode of Survivor Sanctuary. Don't forget to become a patron, patreon.com forward slash Survivor Sanctuary. You can support monthly, beginning at $5, and help us be able to continue to produce this podcast and at the same time, Enjoy some extra benefits for yourself, like extra episodes, early access to episodes, zoom meetings, and more patreon.com forward slash survivor sanctuary. Thanks for listening to survivor sanctuary with me, Kelly Downing. If you found value in today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Not only will it put a big smile on my face, more importantly, your reviews will help make it easier for other survivors and survivor advocates to find this podcast.